This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Amy Dunphy. Now, on September the 8th, which was last Thursday week, Queen Elizabeth II died. She's known universally or was as the Queen, and it has been remarkable to witness the mourning of a nation. Quite extraordinary, really. There was a poll that was done, in fact, last May, in which only 60% of the respondents approved of having a royal family. And yet, there was a poll done earlier this week in which people were asked if they cried or welled up when they heard news of the Queen's death. And 44% of people had either cried or welled up. So clearly, the passing of this remarkable woman at 96 years of age, having been Queen for 70 years, has had a deep effect on tens of millions of Britons. And we're joined now from London by Chris Johns. Chris is former chief economist of the Bank of Ireland and now a respected commentator. And he joins us, as I say, from London. Chris, the response to the Queen's passing has really been remarkable. In my time of seeing people pass, whether it was the death of John Kennedy, Princess Diana even, I have never seen anything quite like this for what appears to be a genuine sense of loss that is almost personal, and that's reflected in the cues and in the tears of a nation not known for really being like that. Yeah, it is an extraordinary event, and I think a much bigger one than any of us anticipated, even staunch royalists would have anticipated. As you said, it's almost personal. I'd actually drop that word almost. For a lot of people listening to the various Vox Pops that have taken place outside various castles, various palaces, and indeed in that queue that you mentioned for people walking slowly towards Westminster Hall, people have been talking about why they are reacting in this way. And it is remarkable just how personal it is. And everybody seems to have uh, their own story to tell. 
and their own personal reflections on this. And, and a lot of them um, say quite remarkable things. They talk about what the Queen meant to them. Um, a lot of them have talked about what the Queen actually did for them, which I find particularly interesting because um, I, I wish the interviewer had pressed them more on, on just what it was that they believed that the Queen did in practical terms for them. Because as we know, the Queen was, despite the fact that she was in the public eye all the time, a very private person. And yes, she chatted to people, she shook their hands. Um, but this sense of meaning that people are projecting onto Queen Elizabeth II um, is, is, is varied from different individual to different individual. And it, it, it is fascinating to observe people talking about it and to ask the question, just what was that? And I think it means different things to different people. I think the Queen's genius actually was that she presented a blank canvas upon which people could write whatever story they wanted. And different people um, did precisely that. The royal family, of course, provided soap opera. It provided entertainment. It provided mystery. A lot of people have talked about the stability that she represented in a world which was very unstable yes. over the last 70 years. So different people have got very different reflections on what she meant. And it is quite remarkable the extent to which this has been evident and just how many people it's been that it is touched. Uh, if you held a referendum today on whether or not to abolish the monarchy, I would vote to abolish it. I would be a, but I would be a very, very lonely Republican. And I think that even for saying this at the moment, um, I run the risk of being accused by other listeners to this of being somewhat disrespectful. Um, going to your specialist area of knowledge, Amy, you'll notice that uh, um, Celtic are likely to be sanctioned by UEFA for banners yeah. held up by their supporters at a match yeah. this week, whereas Rangers disobeyed uh, UEFA rules and played the national anthem before their game, and UEFA is not going to sanction them. So it, this is touching all sorts of different aspects of our lives, including football, in quite surprising ways. Yes, I, I don't propose to offer any brilliant ideas as to why but the one thing that I, I admired her, I must say, when you look at public people, there's a whole gallery out there. What I found admirable about her was, I think she had a sense of humor. I think her love of horses. And I think also that in 70 years, she didn't make many missteps and she had to face, you know, I, I think it was. I can't quite remember how many prime ministers, but lots of them, 15 maybe, I think might be the number. Let me and, challenge you there, Raymond, because what yes. you've described there as a woman who had a sense of humour, loved horses, mm. and uh, kept her resolve in the face of an awful lot of change, uh, those are all true. Um, but why, therefore, do you admire her so much? And more well, generally, I, why do you think that, it, that those qualities, which are cited by lots of people, inspired such deep affection and indeed love. I think there is one other important fact, and it relates to Ireland and her visit to Ireland 11 years ago when the peace process was at a very delicate point. And she did a couple of things. She went to the Garden of Remembrance and she bowed to the heroes of 1916. She also, at a banquet in Dublin Castle, stood up and spoke a couple of sentences in Irish. 
and she did it with good grace. She shook hands with Martin McGuinness. Martin McGuinness was an IRA commander, somebody I personally admired again, but he would have been intimately involved in the murder of Lord Mountbatten. She shook his hand, and in doing a whole range of things, she seemed to have the wisdom and the grace to do what she may have regarded as her duty, but may also, and gave the impression of, regarding as the right thing to do. Yeah, I think that's a fair description of her qualities. And I think you're right to remark in an Irish context what she actually did for the peace process um, in the way that you just described there. But I think it remains a mystery. I think both of us would therefore still say it's a bit of a mystery as to why there is this incredible reaction, bigger perhaps, as you say, than Kennedy and other great figures from history. The reaction is perhaps deeper and broader than that inspired by those. And I think there is an element of mystery as to just why it is so such a such a big deal. Yes, and one other thing, I watched people queuing for nine hours, and they're still doing it. They had to close the queue this morning because it had reached so long. Yes, it, it, it was five miles long. At one point last night, they were going to queue for nine hours. They were British. The British are not, they're more stoical than many, and yet this woman touched them in a way that no other contemporary figure has done. Just to take the, a little bit further, Chris, the prospects now for the royal family, when you consider she also had to deal with difficult things, and she didn't deal particularly well with the death of Princess Diana, for example. And I think it's agreed that Tony Blair had to chivy her and maybe guide her in the end to do the necessary things and to pay the necessary respect. But the question I suppose most people in England will ask when they reflect on this week afterwards, what does this bode for the royal family? Because take this rather remarkable woman away and you're left with, well, what are you left with? Well, you're left with Charles um, in the first instance. And I suppose the question is, can he repeat the trick? Can he inspire the same kind of affection, love, even devotion, loyalty uh, that, that his mother did? And I think the jury is out on that one. And events will come along to test him in the way that they tested his mother. Most yes. of the time she passed those tests. You mentioned one there, which was um, the death of Princess Diana. Another was when Windsor Castle partly burnt down nearly 20 years ago, and there was a right row about the royal family's finances because they expected the state to sump up for that, and people, and indeed the state, um, reacted badly to that suggestion. And if that, then that sparked a whole debate about the royal family finances that resulted in a lot of reform of the finances. Stuff like that will come along to test Charles. I can't imagine he's going to be tested in quite the same way as Queen Elizabeth was, because um, if you think about the sorts of things that we've already mentioned, plus the antics of various members of the royal family, not least Andrew, we can only hope, and I'm pretty sure Charles does, hope that nothing like that is going to come his way. But it will be whether or not he can continue this trick of um, essentially people like me admitting that we're in a very small minority of 
Republicans that would vote for the abolition of the monarchy. I think that um, we are currently clearly in a small minority. He's got to make sure that what his mother did, which was to, which was to keep the UK as some as a country, as a nation, very comfortable with this monarchy um, in a way that other countries clearly have not managed. That that will be the test for him. I think my guess, and it is only that, is that ultimately he will fail because I think she is an incredibly difficult act to follow. And events will come along that will derail him, and uh, that will set up, I think, potential constitutional crisis. But that lies a long way in the future, I suspect, and will depend upon those tests. Yes, and the first test he faced this week that we witnessed was a struggle with two leaking pens. He wasn't pleased, and he barked at the person who was responsible for the pens. I suppose a slimmed-down monarchy such as you have in Sweden, Denmark, Norway, and indeed in the Netherlands. That might be the future rather than... They are really wealthy, and they do own an awful lot of things, including 12 miles off the whole coast of England. Yeah, the, the crown... Farms, the, fish, yeah. all kinds of things. The... Um, the crown, they're, they're various estates and trusts and sources of wealth for the royal family. And we don't know everything about them. Some of the details are public, but many of them aren't. As you probably know, the, the wills of the royal family are sealed. There is a judge in London that has in excess of 30 wills of dead royals locked in his safe, um, never to be released. Um, right. Some will be released after a century. Um, Prince Philip's will for example, is sealed for 99 years. Um, <clears throat> the, the various estates go back to 1337. This is pos positively medieval, this discussion about who has the money and where is it. But the, the estimates that I've managed to put together suggest that the, the total royal wealth is just uh, a shade above £18 billion sterling. And it's all changing hands now. And there are there's the Crown Estate, there's the Duchy of Cornwall, there's the Duchy of Lancaster. As you say, she owns 12 miles of seabed. Uh, he owns 12 miles of seabed now. And, and that's all of a sudden, in the last few years, become very valuable because of um, offshore wind farms and the royalties and rents that flow the income from that. But they own Regent Street. In the, the, people yes. will know about that. There's the St. James area of central London, which is absolutely prime real estate. They own that. Um, Prince Charles owns already a very big farm in Gloucestershire, um, where his, his country home, Highgrove, is based. And that farm is famous for organic products, which he sells. Um, they, are, of course, own all the castles. Things like the Crown Jewels, Royal Art Collection, and all that sort of stuff, it's not theirs. It's not their private property. It can't be sold. So they don't pay inheritance tax on that. But the whole taxation thing associated with the royals was reformed, as I say, 20 years ago in the wake of that fire uh, at Windsor Castle. Overall, we think that King Charles and his family this year will get £86.3 million from the various estates, some of which is shared with, with the UK exchequer. Um, so they get 25% of the profits from all of those land and other ownings. Um, other royals, like Andrew, for example, get their money from the Duchy of Lancaster, which um, last year seemed to, we think, got about 24 million quid in income. The Queen's personal fortune, which is separate from all of that, those billions, is reckoned to be worth 
we won't know because, as I say, her will will be sealed. But her stamp collection, her horse stables, and various personal ownership of property around the country worth roughly, we think, $400 million. That'll pass to Charles' inheritance tax-free. So th- th- these people are not short of a few quid. Fair play to them, uh, I'm sure. And we've seen one or two examples in this country of bigoted Republicans letting their hatred show. There are some things that we really don't need to fully rationalize. I, I note that Lord Hennessy, who is a great constitutional expert in Britain, and we know there's no written constitution, but there are the kind of rules, if you like. He says of the British constitution and the royal family, it may look bonkers, but it just happens to work. So maybe (laughs) we might settle for that. But I do want to ask you about the politics that are coming. And yesterday, Chris, Kwasi Kwatang, the new Chancellor of the Exchequer, an old Etonian, he had some important announcements to make. And next, this day week, actually, next Friday, there will be what's known as a fiscal event rather than a budget, in which some remarkable and risky things are going to be done by Liz Truss's government. Can you tell us about them? Yeah, I think it's being called a fiscal event because they don't want too much scrutiny. And by that, I mean scrutiny from the independent fiscal watchdog. You've got one in Ireland. It's called IFAC. Here it's called the OBR, the Office for Budget Responsibility. And by law, the OBR has to scrutinize every budget and uh, do the economic forecasting and essentially say whether the sums add up. It's kind of an independent costing exercise for the government's fiscal policy proposals. And I think the last thing they want at the moment is the OBR standing up and saying, this is crackers. It makes no sense from a fiscal sustainability point of view to be firstly giving maybe $150 billion to energy consumers on top of all of the tax cuts that he's going to announce next Friday you are going to blow up the fiscal finances, is what I think they fear the OBR would say. A lot of people appear to be of that view, Chris. What's your view? Well, Kwasi Kwarteng, curiously, his instruction to the Treasury this week has been clear and unambiguous. He has said, drop everything, whatever it is that you're doing in the Treasury, all these hundreds of very, very bright civil servants, the Treasury is the, uh, the peak of the British civil service, Um, And we are going for growth. We must drop everything and uh, all our policies must be aimed at achieving 2.5% economic growth for the UK economy going forward. That's not a particularly uh, extravagant ambition. Um, Historically, 2.5% has been something the UK economy has achieved. The trouble is it hasn't achieved it recently. In recent years, the trend rate of growth has been steadily going down. And offices like the OBR think that it's probably more like an underlying rate of one and a half. It may not sound like a huge difference, but in reality, the difference it makes is huge. It makes a huge difference to the public finances. It makes a huge difference to the jobs market and things like inflation, uh, very topical at the moment. So we know, we think we know why the British economy has 
uh, trend rate of growth has declined. It's got to do with multiple factors. Top of the list at the moment would be Brexit. That's a, a drag on economic growth. And so lots of things could be done to improve economic growth. The first thing that Kuateng should know as a PhD economist, as somebody that has got degrees from Oxbridge and Harvard and probably from other places as well, he clearly is a very smart man, is that all treasuries around the world, all finance ministries, anybody involved in economic policy wants more economic growth because economic growth solves an awful lot of economic problems. It's a good thing. And that, unfortunately, there is no single button that you can push marked economic growth that the Treasury has neglected to push in recent years. It just doesn't exist. And uh, it's very difficult and very complicated. You can't do it with soundbite politics. And one of the things I would say that he, if he wants to achieve more growth in the British economy is that he's got to do things like develop a closer trading relationship with Europe. Um, he's not going to do that. Um, for example, um, there was a report out only yesterday that said the number of UK businesses exporting goods to the EU fell by a third in 2021 yeah. last yeah. year. That's an extraordinary statistic. That is a, a, a straight drag on growth. If you increase your exports, your economy is growing. If your exports fall, your economy is shrinking. It's very simple arithmetic. So he thinks driven no doubt in part by ideologically uh, shared beliefs with Liz Truss, that it's back to the old days of Reagan and Thatcher, that the way in which you boost your economy is through tax cuts. Now, tax cuts might boost the economy, depending on the circumstances in which you find yourself. I doubt very much whether they will in the current circumstances. No. The, two, the two big tax cuts that he's going to do are for companies He's going to stop a planned rise in corporation tax, and he's going to reverse Rishi Sunak's rise in national insurance contributions, Britain's equivalent of PRSI, um, neither of which is going to make a hill of beans difference to economic growth, in my opinion. There's lots of things that you can do and hope that they will improve economic growth. There are libraries in universities and finance ministries about economic growth, Eamon, and there are aspects of it that we know. There are many aspects that are a bit of a mystery. There is no set formula that says, if you do this, then this will follow for economic yes. growth. There was a Tory chancellor a long time ago. His name was Barber, a Tony Barber, I think. And he crashed the British economy. One of the worst chancellors in history. And there was something called the Barber Boom. And if yes. you go back and read the speech that he made when he introduced um, his budgets back in the early 70s, they read horrifically like the sort of thing that I suspect yes. um, Mr. Kwarteng is going to be reading out next week. Uh, he, did it, he did the wrong thing at the wrong time. And what the foreign exchange markets, for example, only today are saying is, mm, I don't think this is going to work you're more likely to crash the public finances in particular and do very little for the British economy. Sterling, um, today is the anniversary of something called Black Wednesday, which was when uh, the pound was ejected from the forerunner yeah. of the euro, something called the exchange the end, rate mechanism. Yeah, the end of John Major, I think. Wasn't That's it? right. And uh, it, was, it was the beginning of the end of John Major. Yes. And that's when the Tories, for, for, for more than a decade, lost their reputation for economic management um, so today is the anniversary of that date, 16th of September, 1992. And um, today, 
um, all these decades later, the pound is at uh, a low not seen since the mid-1980s. Um, it, is, it is at an, a 30-odd-year low. So, um, And that is the foreign exchanges. That's the pound sterling markets saying, we're not sure about Kwasi Kwarteng and what he's going to do. And if this blows up into, into a full-blown sterling crisis, words I haven't used for a long time, then they're going to have to change policies very rapidly because the one thing the Bank of England cannot sit over is a crash in the pound sterling. And the traditional way in which you stop the pound sterling from falling out of bed is by jacking up interest rates. And that is not something that the new chancellor or the new prime minister would want. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Now, our own interests here are very closely tied to Britain's stance on Europe. On the Northern Protocol, there is a bill that has gone through Parliament. It's gone to the Lords now, which is basically breaking the Brexit agreement. It's bound to lead to legal action, many people believe and should do, because it's a complete reneging on an agreement that gave Johnson an 80-seat majority and power, and he could say that Brexit was done. Now, the person who put this, drafted this bill as Foreign Secretary was Liz Truss. Michal Martin is due to meet her next week, and she will also meet Joe Biden, who's coming for Queen Elizabeth's funeral. And I would say Biden and this Democratic government administration are very keen on 
no damage to the Good Friday Agreement and stop this nonsense about breaking your deal with Europe. Can they do the things you've outlined they're going to do? And can they live with the consequences of a 33% drop in business with Europe and at the same time keep the DUP happy with this nonsense about the Northern Protocol? Well, the short answer, of course, is no. Because as I said, it, one of the things that you need to do to boost your economic growth, given the circumstances that the UK economy is in at the moment, is improve your trading relationships with your biggest trading partner. Yes. And if you then decide to pursue a political policy, the Northern Ireland Protocol, that actually makes your trading relationships worse, potentially disastrous if they lead to a trade war, that has exactly the opposite effect to the one that you're trying to achieve. The, the other plank of her policies appears to be, apart from the tax-cutting thing, deregulation. And that, too, is not going to be neither here for here or there for economic growth. And so you, you wonder about whether the, the, the continuity of the managing of the headlines that Johnson pursued is the same here, because one of the big deregulations that they have hinted at is that they are doing away with banker, the cap on bankers' bonuses yes. in the City of London that was introduced by the EU when Britain was in the EU. And um, politically, that looks ridiculous because there is no, even Tory voters um, do not have any appetite at the moment for giving bankers more money um, when we have all of the headlines about the lower paid, nurses, and, and all the rest of it. Um, we have a crisis of, of low pay in the UK at the moment, and everybody is acutely aware of that. So why they then do this deregulation thing, starting with bankers' bonus, runs completely counter to the objectives that they have set themselves. So if you set yourself a policy objective, a logical, rational policymaker would say, well, these are the steps that we have to take to try and meet our objectives. They're doing exactly the opposite. The appetite for deregulation in this country amongst people is nil. Because deregulation, for example, has led to uh, raw sewage being pumped yes. out onto British yes. beaches all around the coastline. And of, trains that don't run on time and you pay a fortune to get on them. Absolutely. So the things that they are doing seem to, to carry a political cost because uh, already there has been a huge backlash against this idea that you would abolish the cap on bankers' bonuses. It, and it makes no sense in its own terms because the City of London, although it would like to have it. The City of London has already found its way around um, the, the, this cap anyway. So it has no practical import other than mere headlines and make, make meaning that your HR department has to be a bit creative in how you pay people. But nobody is not coming to the UK to work in the City of London because of these bankers' bonuses. Nobody is leaving the City of London because of these bankers' bonuses. It has no practical consequence whatsoever. So lifting it is neither here nor there. It merely is a deregulation headline that they seem to think is a good Brexit dividend but is neither here nor there. And that's the problem more generally with their policies. Their po like their taxation policies that they mention are going to be neither here nor there for economic growth. So they are setting themselves up for failure, in my view. Now, a final question about Joe Biden's appearance in London. He clearly will have a meeting with Liz Truss. One of the things that would surely help would be the trade deal they have long sought with America. They have been told by Biden and by the Ways and Means Committee, which is chaired by a Democrat at the moment, 
that there be no trade deal as long as they are messing with the Good Friday Agreement and in any way putting it in jeopardy. Is that likely lever that Joe Biden and indeed the Irish government can deploy? As you say, the Democratic administration for years now has been crystal clear on this issue, which is that if you mess with the Northern Ireland border, um, you will not get your trade deal. I mean, it, it couldn't be clearer. I guess the only hope that this administration in Westminster has is that if the um, Senate and um, the House were to change hands in the November yes. midterms, that they might get a more friendly stance from Congress, not from the president, of course, for at least another two years. Um, I think that's a forlorn hope because I, I think in America, the um, the 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 Irish diaspora extends into the re- quite a few members of the Republican Party, actually. And so I, I doubt very much whether or not a change either this November or indeed in two years' time um, would alter American stance on this issue. So I don't know why they keep talking about um, a, a free trade deal with the United States. The only, the, the, the only thing I've got is that ultimately... Um, we have to watch what she does rather than what she said. And maybe she, maybe even the drafting of that bill was a cynical exercise in playing to the hard right-wing ERG section of the Conservative Party yeah. and voters at large. And now that she's got the keys to number 10, it's all quietly going to gather dust. And the mood music coming out of Westminster is consistent with that, in that, yes, the bill will trundle through both the Lords and the Commons and bounce between the two for a while and get passed. And then nothing much will happen, because in the interim, it looks like they are talking to the EU again. The EU came up with an offer this week, um, suggesting that the checks, the hated checks on goods being exported from GB to NI can be minimized. So there are little voices in the background suggesting that things are happening to take this away from the political spotlight and to park it, to to subject it to prolonged negotiations. And it may not be the big deal that, um, that we thought it was going to be. But until it is resolved... I mean, just putting it on the back burner won't be good enough for the Americans. uh, As long as there is a threat, which this bill represents, the Americans are as crystal clear as they can be. They will not give Liz Truss a free trade deal. Just a final thought, Chris, about the royal family and the monarchy in general in Britain. We may be witnessing, with the death of Queen Elizabeth II, the end of it, the beginning of the end of it, when you look at what's left, yeah, I'm. And as I, as I say, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. As I say, the, 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 you're, you're probably you need to probably ha- have both a monarchist and a republican, or a British type republican, such as I am, to to, to have balance here. If you if you wanted balance, and my feeling is that um, Charles, um, at best, can hope, as you said earlier, take the royal family along the direction. Um, that other European royal families have gone, which is mostly yes. to fade into the background and become insignificant. There are many European countries that still have monarchies that I think people are surprised to find that they still have monarchies. They are so almost invisible. I think that's the most likely trajectory. I don't think that we are going to be re- become a republic in my lifetime, certainly given the mood at the moment. Something pretty dramatic would have to happen to yes, change that. Yes. Um, but I think that the... There's this. We may well look back on the Elizabethan era as the as peak monarchy. Okay, 
Chris Johns in London, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.